Well, last week I asked for volunteers for someone to preach the passage, and no one came up. So I'll ask again this week. Now, I don't know if you saw back in June, uh, this report came out, a, a preliminary assessment of unidentified aerial phenomena, which is the new fancy word for UFOs. Uh, the Department of National Intelligence, the director, uh, put out this report back in June. And, you know, what kind of year uh, must it have been if this just kind of went under a blip under the radar, blip on the radar screen, or, or flew under the radar, and, and we just didn't even notice uh, when the government said, hey, UFOs are probably real. <laughs> a nine-page report by the Director of National Intelligence. Uh, it begins with saying, uh, basically, we've had a lot of Navy pilots, and we've had a lot of reports of these uh, unidentified aerial phenomena, and uh, we're unsure about what to do with it, so we've uh, created a task force to figure out what is going on. And 144 of these events occurred uh, from the time of November 2004 to March 2021 in the area surrounding, uh, mostly naval bases and other uh, places where surveillance is found. Uh, let me read uh, a couple little pieces of uh, this report. These UAP appear to demonstrate advanced technology. In 18 incidents described in 21 reports, observers reported unusual UAP movement patterns or flight characteristics. Some UAP appeared to remain stationary in winds aloft or moved against the wind or maneuver abruptly or move at considerable speed without discernible means of propulsion. In a small number of cases, military aircraft systems processed radio frequency energy associated with these UAP sightings. Hmm. UAP demonstrated acceleration or a de degree of signature management, which was unusual. Okay. Uh, the, the report goes on. If when individual UAP incidents are resolved, uh, they will fail, fall, uh, fall into one of five potential explanatory categories. Here are the categories these events might fall into. Airborne clutter, natural atmospheric phenomena, United States government or industry development programs, foreign adversary systems, that's a little frightening, or a catch-all other bin, the report says. Uh, let me read about the other bin. Although most of the UAP described in our database probably remain unidentified due to limited data or challenges uh, to collection processing or analysis, we may require additional scientific knowledge to successfully collect on, analyze, and categorize some of them. We would group such objects in this category pending scientific advances that allowed us to better understand them, and the UAPTF, it's the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force, intends to focus additional analysis on the small number of cases where UAP appeared to display Unusual flight characteristics or signature management, which is to say, they knew we were watching them. Hey, <laughs> right? This, this is, if I were to summarize the report, uh, it, it would go something like this. Uh, these UAP are not normal. Maybe even otherworldly. Uh, moments where you see this aircraft flying in the sky and you say, that's not normal. That's unexpected. And we scratch our heads and wonder, what's going on there? Otherworldly. 
We've entered this section of 1 Peter where Peter is writing to the elect exiles, a group of Christians who have found themselves in modern-day Turkey, and, and the lifestyle they are living, he now says, might it be a kind of lifestyle where people look at the way you live and they scratch your heads and say, that is not normal. That is otherworldly kind of stuff. I've never seen anything like that. Uh, the section begins in chapter 2, verse 11 and following. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Would you live in such a Christ-like kind of way? Would you live with the eternity in mind that God's visitation day is coming? He will return. Would you live like Christ? Would you live with the eternity in mind that when those around you see the way they live, they'll stop condemning you. They'll actually start praising him. Because you have lived such an extraterrestrial kind of life before them in the gospel. Shaped by Jesus and all he has done for you. Live that kind of way, Peter says. And then last week we looked at you know, uh, how we are to live that way within government and then uh, within even servant-master relationships of the time. And, and now we'll look at the husband and wife relationships and how we are to live an otherworldly kind of marriage. That moments like this would occur. And this is where the passage will end in chapter 3, verse 15. This kind of uh, otherworldly kind of living. Where we have set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. And, and then we're prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that we have. But we do this with gentleness and respect. You see what's going on here? When we live these otherworldly kind of lives shaped by Jesus and the gospel. People scratch their heads and then they'll ask, how do you have this kind of hope? How do you live in this kind of way? And then we're able to respond with the good news of the gospel, with gentleness and respect, but saying, this is why as a husband I can live this way. This is why as a wife I can live this way, patterned in the power of Christ, living like this, giving my life away for the other. Uh, so what we'll do this morning, we'll first look at kind of the misconceptions of this passage about marriage, this otherworldly kind of marriage. We'll look at the specific situation. We'll look into wives and we'll look into husbands. The misconceptions, the situation, wives, and then husbands. Uh, in order to do this, uh, I'd love to call uh, Courtney up to help teach this passage with me. And so you can clap for her, please. Uh, she's a gifted uh, teacher and uh, an even more amazing wife. So I uh, love you and thank you for doing this along with me this morning. Let, let's do a bigger clap for her this morning. Wow, you guys are very sweet. It's an honor and a privilege to be able to do this together. Um, I want to say that this is probably not my preferred platform to talk about this. I'd much rather be in my living room or sitting across a table from you in a coffee shop, but I'm honored to be here. Um, I need to take you back to about 2002. I was in nursing school, and I was doing a rotation in a nursing home, and so it's our lunch break, and so I'm sitting in the cafeteria of a nursing home across from my really good friend, Ashley, and she was not a believer, and we had had some conversations, and we got talking about faith and religion and all that again, and she looked at me. I'll never forget. And she said, Courtney, I could never become a Christian. 
And I was like, oh, why? And she said, because of how the Bible devalues and degrades women. And I was like, what do you mean? You know, I, I don't understand that. That's not my experience. And she cited this passage in 1 Peter and talked about how they're a weaker vessel and how we're supposed to be seen and not heard and have a quiet and gentle spirit and um, how they don't value the appearance of a woman, how we're supposed to be frumpy and homely. And um, I remember I had never really read First Peter, I don't think, by that point. So I remember going home, and I didn't even know where to find it, and I Googled, like, weaker vessel, because I was like, surely that's not in the Bible. And sure enough, First Peter pops up, and I remember reading it, And I kind of had that, like, Thomas Jefferson moment, right, where I was like, am I going to cut this out and ignore it and just pretend it's not there and keep living my Christian life? Like, what do I do with this? And I'm really thankful I did. I had a mentor in my life who was like, that's really not an option for us. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful, right? It's all his word. And so you can choose to shut it out, but really maybe you should press into it and go a little deeper and try to figure out what it's saying. And I'm so glad that I did, because it didn't mean what I thought it meant. Um, It's way more challenging of a passage and way more beautiful of a passage. So I think those misconceptions are, I think they're worth highlighting, and we'll unpack them today, um, about what it looks like to submit and have a gentle and quiet spirit, um, that our adornment shouldn't just be external, um, and that we're a weaker vessel. Those are hard things, and we're going to unpack them together. So... Uh, Let's get into the specific situation of the passage, uh, because the situation in this passage uh, matters deeply. Uh, The situation is found in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Peter says this, likewise, uh, pointing back up to Christ, uh, the example, the pattern, uh, the, the power in which we live out the gospel in response to who Jesus is, in the way that Jesus lives, Likewise, wives, the same phrase will be used down in verse 7 towards husbands. Likewise, husbands, in the pattern and the ways of Christ. Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respect and pure conduct. Uh, Here's a situation of the passage. Uh, Most likely uh, here we have a husband who has uh, heard the gospel but is not believing in who Jesus is. Uh, Notice what the passage says. Uh, You have a wife who believes uh, but then some who uh, husbands who do not obey the word. They they have heard the word most likely from uh, a wife who has come to faith in Christ. And she comes home guns blazing, all excited about who Jesus is and what he has said about her value and her purpose and her her strength in Christ and her her new life and peace. And and she says, you got to know this Christ. And he says, no thanks. He's not obedient to the word. He's not received the gospel. Uh, And in this situation, then, may they be one, how? Without a word. I love the play on words there. They don't obey the word. Now would you win them without a word? Actions are more powerful now than your words. Notice she has probably already shared explicitly the good news of the gospel with him. And now she'll go on to live a powerful picture of who Jesus is and what he's done to win over her husband with the conduct of her life. Uh, that's the situation here. Uh, you know, often in the cultural setting, if, if a husband came to Christ uh, in this setting, uh, he would then explain to the whole household, and, and most likely the whole household would trust in him, much like the flippin' jailer in Acts chapter 16. He says, this is what I believe in Christ, and, and not in some sort of perfunctory way, but they're all like, man, we trust you, we're with you, we believe. They all come in and they're all baptized and believe. 
But in this situation, in the cultural context, a wife has come to Christ, and now the husband is saying no, and therefore the household, whole household, in a sense, is against or in opposition to her belief. That's the situation here. A spouse who is unbelieving, winning him or even her over by the way that we live. This matters for husbands and wives who are married to someone who does not know Jesus. Uh, to share with our words uh, in proportion uh, to what our husband or our wife is able to receive at the time, but really to live with our lives a brilliant picture of the gospel in a powerful way. Uh, this matters to, to single men and women today. Because if I could sit with each one of you, uh, particularly if you're considering, man, ought to I date someone who doesn't yet know Christ? I'd say, no, please do not. Uh, follow the scriptures of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6. Don't be unequally yoked. And here it says, man, it's a, a hard situation when you're married to someone who does not share your faith in Christ. I've seen that tension played out over the years when children are born. What do we do about life in church and faith? And, and then when a husband or a wife who's not following Christ lives with certain values that are in, in, in direct and stark opposition to the values of Christ. And, and it can tear a relationship apart. I say, do not date anyone who doesn't share your faith in Christ. And lastly, I'd say this is not, this is not to a wife who is suffering abuse. This is not to a wife who is suffering abuse. If this is you, if you're uh, in a situation where there is physical or emotional abuse, get out. Uh, email me right away uh, or info at thewellsilverspring.org. It's a confidential place to reach out and just say, man, I need some help in this situation. Now, this is about winning a husband over to the faith by the way you brilliantly live for Christ. It is not about abuse. Actually, husbands are told to honor, put their wives on a pedestal, give their whole lives for her flourishing and honoring. This has nothing to do with abuse. Please reach out if that is you and that's your situation. Yeah, okay, so there, so we have this conduct, right, as we cling to Jesus, what that looks like, how we can shine brilliantly the gospel in the way we live. So there are about five commands or verbs that we're going to unpack in these three short verses, three to six. So I hope you have your Bible and a pen. We're going to move pretty quick, um, but there's a lot here that we could cover. So the first one, if you see in verse three, um, it's in, in the negative. It says, to do not let your adornment be external. So the word adornment here comes from the Greek, and the word is cosmos, and it um, really means order, to put something in order. Cosmos is a system where order prevails. It's where we get our English word cosmetics from, and the opposite of cosmos is chaos. So I'm not up here a proponent of makeup. I don't really wear a whole lot of makeup myself, but the idea here is when a woman first gets up in the morning and things are out of order, right, cosmos, cosmetic, she puts makeup on to bring order to her face or does her hair. Um, and so what I'm saying here is the point is that in first century Roman Greek Greco culture, there was an unreasonably high emphasis on the external order of a woman. Um, it mentions hair, the arranging of hair and braiding, that women in the Roman Empire spent hours addicted to ridiculous, extravagant hairstyles. They would have their hair woven into tiers of knots and braids. They often wore wigs that were blonde. Um, they had ivory and gold-studded gems put in them. 
So think about the preoccupation, the commitment, the focus, the amount of time that went into this external clothing, jewelry, and hair. Versus what it says in verse 5, the hidden qualities, the imperishable beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit. Does that word imperishable stand out to you? I hope so. We've read about it in chapter 1, verse 4. Circle it. It's what describes our inheritance, our salvation, our living hope. It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So this imperishable, this inner beauty, what does it look like? Well, the two descriptions that are given are a gentle and quiet spirit. And I want you to know my first 21st century definition of these words, I don't like these words. <laughs> they don't describe my personality, my Enneagram number, my Myers-Briggs profile, none of it. None of these words <laughs> describe me, and anyone in my family or community group can attest to this. But that's where Bible study is not. <laughs> they can, right? Yeah, no. <laughs> but that's why Bible study is more than just a light reading kind of thing. You have to go deep and understand what they mean, and I'm so glad that I did. This word gentle, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, is prowess, and it means meek, and it's pertaining to not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. It's really a disposition and a deference to others. It's a God's strength under control, and Jesus used this word to describe himself. Make a note of it. Matthew 11:29. he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And sometimes it's easier to understand what a word means by looking at the opposite. The opposite of this word means strident, pushy, manipulative, and selfish. And a Christian woman with an inner beauty knows who she is in Christ, where her identity comes from, and that she doesn't have to be someone she's not. There's almost a self-forgetfulness about her. She's able to look to the good of others. And then quiet, it's this word, hesukios. And it means to be settled or have an inner calmness. It's not condemning those women who are talkative, but it's describing a woman who's at peace, who's able to extend peace or provide calm or a sense of order in any situation. So both of these qualities, a meekness and an ability to bring calmness, how does it describe it? Look at it. It's precious in God's eyes. Why? Because it's a picture of Jesus looking to the needs of others, caring about them, using your strength for the good of others. So this is in no way saying that we shouldn't take care of our outer appearance or be frumpy in any way. But it's that our inner beauty ought to shape our outer exterior. That we should find our strength and our beauty internally and that our identity should come from Christ alone. That in our self-worth, we have this security and freedom to look to others. So it's almost like as we take care of ourselves, we can forget ourselves, right? Um, and look to others. And I want to ask you, do you know any women like this? I hope so. Two of my best friends exemplify this so well. And you want to be around them, right? You're the most important person in the room when you're with them. They're not thinking about what they're going to say next they're consumed with you and how your day is going. Um, my friend Kara, who lives this out really well, her birthday was a couple weeks ago, and I was thinking about what to get her, and I was in the candle aisle, and you know the candles with all the adjectives that say rejuvenate and joy and peace and all those whatever. I walked across the candle, and it said calm. And I bought it for her, and sure, she is sort of calm in her personality, but that's not what I wrote in her birthday card. 
It's not that she's calm, but what I told her was, you just bring calm to people that you're around. Everyone can just relax when they, and be themselves when they're around you. And that's what this is saying about us, that we want to develop that kind of personality that just looks to others and cares for them. That's how Jesus lived, and that kind of living is countercultural. Okay, well, we got a few others to cover in two short verses, and they're all tied to the holy women of the past. These women, holy, is, that means, by definition, set apart. These women were different from those that were around them. And specifically, we see Sarah used as an example. And she has a messy past. She is not perfect. We're going to see some of that. But she was faithful. Not perfect, but faithful. So here's what it says. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. So what do we see first? They hoped in God. Not in their husbands, not in their circumstances, but their hope was in God. Hope means a confidence that something will come to pass, counting on something. So we need to put our trust, our hope in God. It makes me think about Genesis 12, 5, when Abraham came, came to told her they need something. to pack up everything, so leave their home, trust, leave their gods, leave their, you know, everything God. they know, and pack up and Genesis travel 12, to a land that God will show them. Came to told her and she did it. She put her hope in leave God. Their home, leave their gods, now, like I said, she didn't get all this right. Right? A bunch of us women, we've been reading through the Bible this year. We took the challenge to do together. So we've read through Genesis. And so I was reminded um, of Genesis 15 when God makes that covenant with Abraham that he's going to bless him and give him and make his name great and give him offspring. Um, Well, Genesis 16, it doesn't say, so Sarah fasted and prayed and waited for God to give her a baby. No, she decided to give Hagar, her maidservant, or Egyptian slave, to Abraham instead because she couldn't have children. Right? So she kind of took matters into her own hands. And then in um, Genesis 18, when the Lord comes to tell her, she laughs at him. Right? So she doesn't always get this right. But we we should not forget her legacy and how it's recorded for us. In Hebrews 11, 11, let me read it for you. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. She considered him faithful. Through her journey, it's messy, but she learned to put her hope in God. And so some of you are in difficult situations in marriage, in your family and career. What would it look like for you to continue to put your confidence in God, not in your earthly situations? And Jesus describes that as building our house on a rock, not the sand. And so living with our hope in God is simple. Jesus says it's those who hear the word, believe the word, and obey it. That is how we put our hope in God. And so living with our hope. All right, God the word that nobody likes to talk about, I like to call it the shameful the S word, word comes next. Word it says that she submitted to her own husbands. And this word has been misused right, and abused. The likes to There's a lot of stigma like attached to it. So I decided I wasn't going to talk about the word submit. I'm going to go back to the Greek word because there's not all that stigma attached to it. So the Greek word for submit here is hupatasso. So we're going to talk about that, okay? We all can talk about that. Nobody knows what that is. So the word hupatasso has two meanings really in Scripture. The first one is a military term, and it describes a soldier submitting to a superior. Um, it's almost like this powerful, really authoritative scripture. command of a leader, is a this forceful submission. 
and it's seen a couple different times. 1 Corinthians 15, 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. There's a few more. Let me give you one more. Ephesians 1, 22, and he, that's God the Father, has put all things under his, that's Jesus, feet and gave him as head over all things. And most often when we see this definition used in scripture, it is in terms of the authority of Christ and God the Father. And that's a good thing, right? God the Father, he is our alpha and our omega, the creator, the sustainer of all things. And one day he will come back and judge all things and put all things under his feet. There is a time when he will use his ultimate authority and put an end to all evil. That's one use of the word hupotasso. That is not the meaning of this word right here. And any time that definition is applied to marriage is unbiblical, disastrous, and disgusting. The second use of the word hupotasso is here. It's a non-military term. And it is what we've studied so far in 1 Peter 2.13, right? Verse 16 talks about we are all free in Christ, right? And then verse 13 says... Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Hebrews, or Ephesians 5.21 talks about how we're supposed to hupotasso one another. We're supposed to live this way. Let me read you the definition. It's a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. So I'm going to take each of those apart because I think they're significant. First one is Voluntary. It is a choice that each person willingly decides to do. No one can force you to do it, but we voluntarily decide. The next one that it talks about, it says that we are to hupotasso our own husbands. Okay? This is not a gender thing. Women, we do not submit to all men. Wives, you are only called to hupotasso to your own husband. The next, it's assuming responsibility, that Peter takes his short book and addresses wives in this day and age was completely countercultural. Women were seen as property of their husbands. So the fact that he addresses them, that they have responsibility, he is valuing them and validating them as individuals, that they are morally responsibility and equal in value. And then the last one is carrying a burden. This speaks to the capacity, ability, and strength of women. This makes me think of Genesis 2.18, when God's creating Eve, and he said he's going to make a helper suitable for Adam. And I know Matt's talked about this a lot, but the word helper is used to describe God himself and the Holy Spirit. And it's most used in ancient biblical times when two nations are at war with one another and one nation needs help from an outside king or an outside army. And that outside king or army comes, he is known as the helper. He is the stronger one. This is not a call to be weak or passive. So how Matt and I, we use to, when we sum it up, the way that we would describe or define hupatasso in this setting is to voluntarily, that I voluntarily bend my will, leverage all that I am, my strengths, my abilities, my skills, for his flourishing, for the good of my husband. To support him, love him, cooperate with him, respect him, push him to Jesus, putting his needs before my own. 
And that requires me to be attentive, to be a good listener, to stay engaged with my husband. I can't be so consumed with the kids and my own life and schedule and all of the rest that I need to use my strengths and my abilities and leverage them for his good. And what I find interesting is that the mechanics and the practicalities of how you play out hupatasso in your marriage aren't really listed for us in scripture. That's something for you and your husband to figure out. What does that look like in your home? How do you support and respect and value and bend your will and leverage all that you are for him? In this passage, uniquely, though, it's not listed anywhere else in Colossians or Ephesians where it's talked about marriage. We actually get a specific or a mechanic of how Sarah worked out Hupatasso in her marriage. What does it say? That she called him Lord. Translating, that means my blessed one or dear husband. It was a term of respect or endearment. That's how she lived out Hupatasso. Now, I'm guessing that probably doesn't translate today. Babe, chances are I'm never going to call you Lord. It's just not going to happen. But I think it's important for you. <laughs> yeah. I think it's important that you think through what the mechanics are, what that looks like in your marriage. So before we move on, I just need to tell you a few things that Hupatasso or submission is not. It is not agreeing with everything your husband says. And we see that specifically from this passage because oftentimes the woman is a believer and the husband is not. And so she is living out her beliefs, so they're not always going to agree. Submission is also not that your husband makes all the decisions. It is not a passive role. It's an active role to hupatasso. And then lastly, submission does not mean that your relationship with the husband comes before your relationship with Christ. This text clearly teaches that the wife is a follower of Jesus before her role as a wife. I think that's mostly evident that she was able to call her husband Lord, lowercase l-o-r-d, but her hope was in who? God, capital L-O-R-D, her Yahweh. And so one more time that I think it's important to say submission is this voluntary choice to bend my will to leverage all that I am for the flourishing of my husband, for the good of my husband, to support him, to push him, to love him, and point him to Jesus using all my strengths for his good. All right, the next one says, then what? That we would be like Sarah in doing good and not doing anything that is frightening. So you'll never guess what doing good in the Greek means. It actually means doing good, so I thought I wouldn't try to pronounce it. But it's an active idea. It's, a, it's sort of like um, 1 Corinthians 13, right? Those aren't just things you think about. Love is patient. I should think about being patient. You know, it's active. It's patient. I need to be patient. Or love is kind. I actually need to be kind. So what does it look like to love and to do good to your husband, to show him that you love him and value him and respect him? Well, it can be really simple things. I can tell you in our home, Matt often feels like he comes to the bottom of the list after all the kids and all the activities and all the different things. So for me, doing good just looks like greeting him when he comes home with a hug or a kiss, right? Like not slandering him when I'm out with my girlfriends and they're slandering and gossiping out their husband that I don't participate in that. Um, when my kids were small, when I would take time and get a babysitter and go out on a date, that was doing good. That spoke volumes to my husband. I don't need to get a babysitter anymore because I have teenagers, so I just need to utilize them. But um, that is doing good. It can be really simple things and big things, but doing good. And I think this speaks to just doing good in general, too, in your community and your neighbors and all of that. 
Amen. And then the last thing, to do not fear anything that is frightening. That seems impossible, doesn't it? To not fear, to not be afraid, struck with fear or alarm, anything that is frightening. It's almost the same word, to be afraid, to be filled with alarm or terror. Um, it kind of reminds me, do you remember that Mad TV or Saturday Night Live skit with Mo Collins and um, Bob Newhart? And she comes in, and he's the psychologist, and she's scared that she's going to be buried alive and all that. And she's totally terrified, and she's there to see him. And he's like, I have two words for you. She's like, okay, and she's going to write it down. He's like, just stop it. You know, she's like, what? She's like, stop it. You know, I feel like that's kind of what it's saying. Do not fear things that are frightening. How are we just supposed to stop it, you know? Um, and I think... It's re- I think first what we need to do is recognize our fears. I think we have to name the things we're afraid of. And I think we need to be careful because fear has many faces. I think it's a, it's a primary emotion, but it has secondary effects, right? So some of us, when we are afraid, we're just paralyzed and we do nothing. I think that's normally what you think of, right? Fear. But that's not my go-to fear. When I'm afraid... I want to control everything, right? I want to white-knuckle it. I can figure it out. I'm going to get to the bottom of it. That's where I go to. And I think sometimes it can look like courage, but we need to be careful and call it what it is. It has the foundation of fear. It is not courage. And so when we see it, we need to be able to recognize it and call it out. And then to not, to not fear, I'm glad we're going to get there. In chapter 5, verse 7, what does it say? Cast all your fears all your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. So we have to do something with them that we're not going to fear. Dump them somewhere. Give them to Jesus. He loves you. He cares for you. And then I think it's helpful for us to remember where we've been in chapter 2. She's a believer. She is being built into a spiritual house. We have a family and a community. Bring them to those around you. Let each other carry each other's burdens. Um, so to kind of summarize it, um, all that we've covered, which is a lot, um, if I were to summarize all of where we've been, I would say a wife who finds her identity, her sense of order, her purpose, her security in Jesus, this is how she lives. I will live for you, right? Her gentle and quiet spirit is those who looks for the good of others. This hupatasso, right, that she leverages all she is for her husband. I will live for you, you before me. And then this second part, I think this idea that we are linked with holy women of the past and of today, that we're not alone, and so that we are linked with women that we can learn from. Find women around you that are maybe a season ahead of you or a little bit ahead of you spiritually that do this and do this well and learn from them. We can learn from Sarah, Deborah, Naomi, Ruth, people in scripture, but women today as well, that we ought to be linked and learning from other women. Um, of what it looks like to risk and lead and live this kind of way. So, all right, now, husbands, it's your turn. <laughs> hey, can we clap for court, please? Thanks for sharing. Um, and then Peter moves on to husbands. He says, likewise, in the same way as wives who live in the pattern of Jesus, and as Jesus himself, who lives in the power and pattern of Jesus, live in the same kind of way of giving yourself for the other in a very countercultural kind of way. He says, uh, first, live in all understanding, live in an understanding way. Uh, the idea there is gnosko, or uh, get to know everything about your spouse. 
know everything about her. In the culture, uh, you know, this wasn't like a, a prime principle for the husband towards the wife to, to know deeply his spouse and to figure out how to meet her every need and care for her as he comes under her and gives himself away as Jesus has given himself away for the church. But know every aspect about who she is and what makes her flourish and then do that. Give yourself away for her. Uh, then second, he says, uh, and uh, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you. Uh, notice first, he says, give honor to your wives, uh, before we get to as the weaker vessel, right? Uh, honor your wife, uh, uh, treat her as precious and honor her. It's the same word that's used back in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, that uh, Jesus himself is a chosen, precious cornerstone. Uh, so the honor is for us, Christians, who believe in him. Uh, uh, this is that same kind of honor to say, uh, come under her, give your life away for her, that you put her up on a pedestal in your life and in the lives of others. Shine on her. Honor her. As the weaker vessel, uh, Peter says this, uh, knowing here's the reality, there is physical strength to men that is different than the general physical strength to women. The weaker vessel is named here. And also, uh, culturally, uh, the, the amount of uh, entitlements given to men versus women, particularly in that culture, is completely uh, disparate. He says, so in this setting, when others are not doing this, would you honor, would you leverage all of your strength for her good? Give yourself away for her. You know, when Paul will talk about this same kind of thing, what husbands are called to is they take ultimate responsibility and leadership in their homes. He'll say it's just like how Jesus has done this for the church. The very character of your leadership, the very character of your responsibility is to be colored in the same pattern likewise as Christ who died, who gave his whole life away for the flourishing of this church. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and following, we read this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do we see the picture? It's such a countercultural one. You've got a wife saying, I'm going to take all of my strength. I'm going to take all of who I am. And I'm going to give it away for your good. I'm going to willingly submit myself to you to give all of my strength for you. And then the husband is saying, I'm going to give everything I've got, just like Jesus did, to die for you, to honor you, to cherish you. And over and over again, the two keep saying, how can I give my life away for you? Likewise, just as their Savior has done for them. That is otherworldly. That is otherworldly. And Peter is going to say, God takes this super seriously. He says directly to husbands, honor her like this, since they are heirs with you. There is even and equal and, and unworthy of praise and cherishing and value as you for the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. If you treat my daughter a certain way, God says, don't you dare talk to me if you're mistreating her. It reminds me of when I 
uh, started dating Courtney. And uh, Papa Norman, that's uh, Courtney's dad, has a certain rule that if anyone's going to date his daughter, he's going to take her out, uh, take him out to uh, take him on a date first and kind of give him the one-two. So I went on that first date. Now, we dated and broke up multiple times, so I got to go on lots of these uh, dates with them. <laughs> but I remember the first one poignantly. Uh, uh, Mark, he, he walks me through the, the garage, and, and the first thing he does, he, he points right, he says, you know, I'm a deer hunter, and I'm like, oh, really, and he goes, and his compound bow is hanging right there with the, with the really sharp deer arrows, <laughs> and he's like, I'm like, oh, that's great, he's like, that's great, and this is sophomore year of high school, you know, I'm terrified, and uh, <laughs> he takes me out to eat, and uh, he, he goes, uh, and now he swore uh, secrecy about this. He said, never tell anyone this. Little did he know I'm going to tell the whole congregation. But just a small piece. He says, uh, he says you know what I feel like when, when uh, a boy takes my daughter out on a date? He says, I feel like I'm handing a Stradivarius violin. That's a super expensive, like 10000 or more, like really delicate, amazing violin. He says, I feel like I'm handing a Stradivarius to a gorilla. I'm like, okay, thanks. And you know, I've been trying to do the, the rest of my life uh, since Court and I got married. I've been trying to do just what Jesus said, which is you wake up every morning. You say, how, do you, how am I going to die that she would flourish? How do you take responsibility for your home in a way that you die, but your children, your wife flourishes? Man, I mess that up nonstop. But, but then, uh, you know, I, I commandeered this uh, this drawing for Mark uh, to be drawn <laughs> on one Valentine's Day. I said, Mark, this is what I'm aiming for. <laughs> We've really screwed this up in relationships. Husbands, wives, men, women, everybody. This whole pattern of otherworldly living that says, I'm going to give my life away for you. And the very pattern we're trying to live up to, Jesus, is the very power that gives us the grace to keep at it. Because when we screw this up, when we say, I want to live like your son lived, I want to give my life away that she would flourish. And a wife says, I want to give all my strength, all my resources for the good of my husband and my kids. And we just keep messing up, we keep hurting each other. He says, I've forgiven you again. Because the pattern we're trying to live into is the very power of our forgiveness and empowerment to live this way tomorrow and today. So if you're trusting in Christ, would you take and eat this morning? You may not be living in the relationships in the way that you want to, but, but this morning, would you receive this forgiveness in a way that you're compelled to live like his son? And if you're not trusting in Christ, don't, don't take the elements this morning, but instead, would you receive Christ? one who's given his whole life away for you that you would flourish let's take and eat and remember together who our savior is and how he's called us to live